Welcome to 76 West, a podcast of the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan, featuring talks from the JCC's Conversation Series, a marquee program of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas. This podcast is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. Today we'll be listening to a discussion between Ruth Reichel and Abigail Pogrebin, part of Abby's ongoing series at the JCC, What Everyone's Talking About. In today's podcast, legendary food critic, editor, and best-selling author Ruth Reichel describes her journey away from Gourmet Magazine and back to her own kitchen, resulting in the book, My Kitchen Year, 136 Recipes That Saved My Life. A six-time James Beard Award honoree, Reichel captures not only her zeal for the great meal, but the joy to be found in small culinary encounters and how what we eat can animate our lives. This talk was recorded on April 20th, 2016. Please enjoy it. Happy Pesach, everybody. We're going to talk about uh, a lot of chametz tonight. We're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're not going to worry about flour tonight. And we're going to eat that banana bread. We're so happy that uh, the kitchen made it. I just have to say a big thank you to the Zabars family because none of this would have happened for six years without them and I am personally grateful. And uh, Ruth was just mentioning that Zabars is photographed in her book. So it's, it's a lot of synergy there. So an- another round of applause for Zabars, part of our Jewish lives. So Ruth, I love this book and I'm planning, um, I think in another life to cook every recipe um, if I'm courageous. But um, let's start with matzo brai because there's a lot of Jews here. Um, when I interviewed you for Stars of David, you told me that your family tradition was to eat matzo brai every Christmas morning. Um, so my mother was a legendarily terrible cook. Um, but the one meal that she did really right was breakfast. And every morning... She's I, back I grew on, up, thank you. I grew up on 10th Street. And every morning, my mother squeezed fresh orange juice, and then she went around the corner and bought fresh rolls um, for my father. And my father had, he was German, and he had a kind of smorgasbord every morning. There was herring and uh, salami and all kinds of cold cuts and Limburger cheese. Um, So we sat down to this sort of feast. But um, on Christmas morning, um, and I'm sorry, we were Christmas tree Jews. Um, we would open our presents, and then Mom would make her one, the one dish she did really well, which was matzo brai. And we would all sit down and eat matzo brai. And what Mom said, which is absolutely true, is the secret to matzo brai is lots of butter. So you have it and in this book. I have it in this book. And... Um, when my son was young, um, he was one of those kids who ate five white foods, which everybody thought was hilarious. I mean, at the time, I was the restaurant critic of the Los Angeles Times and then the food editor of the Los Angeles Times. And I had this kid who literally ate five white foods. And when he would put one down, you know, he would decide he wasn't going to eat French fries anymore. And then he would eat um, Parmesan cheese. But the one thing that he ate throughout his childhood and never rejected was matzo brai, which he called mana. (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect. So let's go first of all to the title of the book. Um, Can you explain it and take us through the gestation of it? Yeah, so um, I never in a million years saw the closing of Gourmet coming. I mean, I knew we were in a recession, Um, you know, advertising was bad, but advertising was bad everywhere. It wasn't just us. And, you know, Gourmet was profitable for 67 of its 69 years. So I sort of thought, you know, they'll they'll cut us a little slack. And the they is Condé Nast. The they is Condé Nast. And I was on tour for the giant Gourmet cookbook. And I got a call that said, you have to come back to New York. And I said, no, I'm, I'm going to Portland tomorrow. And my boss said, no, come back. And I said, do you want to give me a hint? And he said, no, just come back. And 
And so you literally got on a plane without knowing. I really what got was on a store. plane without knowing, but thinking I was going to get fired. But it never hit me that they would actually close the magazine. And um, it wasn't just losing the magazine. I mean, this magazine survived for almost 70 years and it closed on my watch. Mm. And 65 people who I really cared about lost their jobs. And I just felt guilty. You know, I should have seen it coming. I should have stopped it. How could I be so stupid? What could I have done? So I went through this long period of just really self-loathing and then also thinking, you know, um, I'm 62 years old. Who's ever going to give me another job? Um, You really thought that after the big jobs you've had? I really thought that, you know. I mean, this is an ageist society. Um, I still had a kid in college. Uh, We depended on two incomes. We live in New York. It's not cheap. Right. Um, And I was really scared. And and I can get scared into this place of getting myself homeless. You know, it, it doesn't take me very far to go right to the limit of... I'm out on the street. We have nothing. Yeah, that's the Jew in you. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And um, I realized I could not wallow in this. And the first day, I mean, it was very weird because I was still on tour for the Gourmet Cookbook after the magazine closed. But when I finally came home, I thought I can wallow or I can cook. And I invited a bunch of friends over, and I baked a giant chocolate cake. I mean, a chocolate cake that feeds 25 people. And I, you know, because that is, it's really hard to be depressed when that much chocolate is wafting through your apartment. Um, And then um, I, I had always said, if I didn't have a day job, I would write a novel. And so I thought, what I'm going to do is write a novel. And um, it's probably not the smartest thing to do when you're not feeling really great to do something you don't know how to do. And I struggled with this novel. And then when I got stuck, which was a lot, I would go out and go to Zay Bars, go to Citarella, go down to Chinatown, wander around, go to cheese stores, talk to people in markets, talk to butchers, gather up food and go home and do the kind of cooking I hadn't done in years, which was not goal-oriented. You know, it was just noodling around in the kitchen cooking. So fast forward six or seven months, and we still have gourmet reunions. We we had one last week, actually. So we have a gourmet reunion, and we meet in um, this kind of cheap and cheerful Chinatown restaurant. And one of my colleagues sort of ran his hand across the oilcloth uh, on the table and said, boy, you must really miss your expense account. How long has it been since you haven't had an expense account? And I hadn't thought about it, but I I did the math, and it was 1978. Wow. And he said, so for 35 years, you've been able to eat in any restaurant in the world on somebody else's money. And I said, yeah. And he said, boy, it must be really tough. You must really miss those restaurants. And I said, you know what? I don't. I've loved cooking so much that... I hadn't even thought about the fact that I wasn't going to restaurants. And he said, you know, Ruth, as long as I've known you, you've said that your mission in life was to get people cooking again. Why don't you write a cookbook? And that was kind of the genesis of this because these cooking really did save my life. If I could not have cooked in that year, I don't know what I would have done. And it grounded me. I mean, it got me back to this place. I mean, I'd been living this huge life, you know, with cars and expense uh, expense accounts and a clothing allowance and um, a driver and famous people. And suddenly I realized that all that stuff just didn't matter. And 
you know, it was being in the kitchen and cooking for the people I loved just got me back to a place of sanity. And just to take us to a little more, in a more granular way, what is it about the cooking that is so restorative or meditative for you? Because so many of us have tremendous anxiety um, <laughs> about cooking. I'm, I'm not a relaxed cook. But it seems to that you, for you, it's kind of almost a solve, it, like a healer. It is, it, it's a meditation for me. And I, I feel like we in the media have a lot to answer for because we've made people like you think that cooking is a test. And that if you don't come up with something great, you, you failed. You, you've really failed. I've had a lot of therapy, and but it's you know, um, you know, to me, you know, you play around. You cooking is an adventure, and if it doesn't come out, there's another meal in a few hours. I mean, I uh, I don't have that. Oh my God, what if it's not a good meal? Um, I don't have that gene, and it's probably because I started cooking when I was really young because I pushed my mother out of, <laughs> away from the stove. And the jacket of Tender at the Bone is a picture of me cooking at seven. And, and your you first cookbook was 21? 21. I wrote my first cookbook. And um, so for me, I mean, I love, you know, I go into the kitchen and... I really try and pay attention to, you know, the sound of water when it's boiling and um, the scent of the coffee beans when you first pour the water over it. And the color, when you peel a peach, there's a color right under the skin. You never see it if you bite into it, but it's like a sunset that's just waiting there for you. And for me, these moments in the kitchen are little moments where I really think I'm so glad to be alive and to see these things. You also talk about the physicality, the chopping and uh, the uh, I, and the shopping, frankly, which is, can be very tiring. Oh, see, I love shopping. I mean, I you know, I you know, I, I do when I travel, I do two things or three things. I walk, I go to museums. And I go in and out of every grocery store, every market, um, you know, and I love to watch people shopping. I love to watch people eating. My husband's always saying, stop staring. You're <laughs> staring at those people at the next table. Why is that interesting for you? Because I think you can tell a lot about people, about the way they eat, um, you know, how they cut their food, um, the, the anticipation on their faces. I mean, it's... Um, you know, I, I see the world food first, and um, I, I, what I'm hoping that this book will tell you is, you know, really cooking is an adventure, and it's about the journey. It's not about the result, and um, you should enjoy it. And if you don't feel like cooking one day, don't, you know, order order in or, you know, make some eggs. Um, I, I don't think cooking should be a chore. I mean, I joked about my own cooking anxiety, but I don't think I'm alone in that. No, you're not. And you write about, or you at least in some of the interviews I read on this book, you acknowledge that there's sort of a fear, whether it's a fear of performance or a fear of it being not working out, you know, not trusting a recipe. You made these recipes did, I think, on t intentionally accessible and almost conversational. Well, yeah. I mean, I really wanted... I mean, the I, I wasn't sure Random House was going to let me get away with it, actually, because they are not written in classic recipe form. They're written... Um, my favorites are actually written like stories. Um, but they're all the ideas that I'm sort of standing there with you, talking you through it, and hoping that you're going to make this recipe yours, not my, you know, it's not mine. I mean, a lot of recipes are like prescriptions. They're marching orders. And this is more like a dance that we're doing together. And that's what I want it to feel like. Um, and Random House was, was okay with those? They were okay with it. I mean, I actually asked the woman who tested the recipes to put them into classic form. And when I turned the book in, I said to my editor okay, you know, I know this is a weird way to write recipes. I just want you to know that I do have them in classic form if that's what you need. And she kind of looked at me and said, 
why would we want that? Great. Um, before we leave the gourmet moment, what was the actual experience of being in that room and hearing that news? Did you hear it with everyone on your staff at the same time? Yeah, it was. I, I it was really a shock. I mean, I knew something bad was coming, but that just it was unimaginable to me. And um, you know, the shock in the room. I mean, there was just everybody was just. Stunned. Really stunned. And a lot of the staff had been there for, well, you know Zan. I mean, Zan, Zan was gone by then. But, um, I mean, a lot of people had been there 35 years. Um, my secretary had been there 30 years. Wow. Um, there were a lot of people who had never worked anywhere else. Um, and we were a very tight group of people. And the minute the suits left the room... James Rodewald, our drinks editor, went into his office, which was lined with hundreds of bottles of wine, and he said, we're not leaving them a single drop. <laughs> and he started opening bottles. <laughs> and we drank all day, and at, at, you know, at 5 o'clock, none of us were ready to leave each other. I mean, we had this feeling of we may never all be together again. So I said, everybody come back to my house. And we had a wake that sort of went on all night. But the next day, everybody else had to go pack up their office. And I had to go back on the road for the book, for the book which truly was one of the strangest times of my life, because it was like an endless revival meeting where people wanted to stand up and testify to what the magazine had meant to them, often with tears rolling down their face. Mm. And people would say, you know, I cooked my daughter's wedding out of gourmet. I taught my child to cook. I learned to cook. Um, it's just, you know, six weeks of stories about gourmet. It was, um, it was really hard. Um, there was one moment, that that first moment, and I put it in a book, but um, when I went off to the airport on the first round of this trip, uh, the day after the magazine closed, and Michael, my husband, said, you're crazy. Why are you doing this? You're, I mean, it's their book. It's not your book. You're not making anything from it. Um, and I just said, well, you know... Uh, I have to do this. It's uh, the book deserves a chance. It's a good book, and um, but I got to the uh, Newark Airport and I hadn't eaten, and I was kind of in this, you know, I'd been drinking all night and I hadn't eaten, and I was in this this funk, and I realized I should get something, and I'm wandering around the little cafeteria there, and I pick up a sandwich and I take it to the counter. And the woman looks at me and she says, I love this, that magazine. This one's on me. And it was such an amazing moment to me um, and a reminder of how important random acts of kindness can be. I mean, it just buoyed me for the first leg of that trip. You also, I think, early or during that um, during that book tour, you said something about eating or eating as an ethical act. That was that because there was some debate about the the, <clears throat> the pieces in gourmet that were taking on some of the food issues of the time, or the sustainable food, or the political ramifications of eating, or any of those things. Well, I mean, it, it's interesting. Um, I'm I'm working on the gourmet memoir right now, and I'm I just today started writing the chapter about David Foster Wallace, who wrote one of the most difficult pieces in that we ever printed in Gourmet. Um, we sent him to the Maine Lobster Festival, and he ended up writing a bioethics piece about what lobsters feel when they go into the pot. Um, and it's classic David Foster Wallace. It is a brilliant piece of writing, and it scared the daylights out of me. I mean, it really, I mean, I thought, um, you know, 100,000 subscribers are going to write in and cancel their subscriptions and say, I don't buy Gourmet Magazine to find out what 
lobsters feel going into the pot. Um, in fact, and um, I have the stack of letters, 98% of the mail that we got was, thank you so much. This is such a thoughtful piece. It was unpleasant to read, but we need to think about these things. And in fact, um, all of these dangerous topics, and we did a lot, we did pieces on trans fats and how um, they, Procter & Gamble and the other companies had known for 30 years how bad they were and done their best to cover it up. I mean, it was tobacco all over again. Uh, we did the first pieces that said how bad um, salmon farming was. Um, we did, you know, the Barry Estabrook's Tomato Slaves piece. Um, all the mail we got on those, and it, it drives me crazy because the food magazines have sort of retreated into recipes and restaurants and frilly stuff. But in fact, gourmet's readers love those pieces. Mm. So... Um, you know, we, I really felt when I became the editor of Gourmet that we needed to, we as consumers needed this information. I mean, the, the, our food system is so complicated now that we really needed to write about, you know, or is genetic modification good or bad? And we did pieces on both sides of it. But, um, you know, what's happening on the farms um, that we really needed to give people who were cooks solid information and help in figuring out how they should be shopping and what the ethical issues that we were facing today were. And, you know, when the magazine closed, we had the highest circulation in the magazine's history. So it did not scare our readers away. And um, there was a lot of speculation in the press that, oh, you know, we shouldn't have done these serious. That was not what killed mm. the magazine at all. And how, just so people can kind of understand, how did it work in terms of the test kitchens and the cooks there? I, I hadn't realized what an incredible operation it was. Oh, it was an incredible operation. Um, first of all, I have to say that, you know, working at Condé Nast was amazing that Cy Newhouse in his heyday really believed that if you gave people the best writing, the best photography, they would pay for it. I mean, he trusted the readership in a way that I think most publishers don't today. Um, he, and we had eight test kitchens. We had 12 full-time test cooks. And the test cooks not only, I mean, they tested those recipes to literal absurdity. I mean, I am not kidding. I mean, if we did a chocolate cake, we did it with every chocolate cake, every chocolate on the market, wow. um, just to see if one was better than the other, what we could recommend. Um, we just did them over and over again, and everybody would taste and say, you know, a little less of this, or maybe you should cook it a little bit more. Um, Were you going in all day tasting things? Going in it all day. Um, I can't say I tasted everything, but things would come up. They would bring them to me if I didn't go taste them. Um, I gained 15 pounds on that job. Wow. Um, and I had been a restaurant critic at that point for 30 years. So. <laughs> Um, and there were special, I mean, there was a Mexican, French, there were cooks who there, were There were cooks who were experts. Um, you know, one of our cooks, um, Paul Grimes, had been Simca Beck's assistant when she was working with Julia Child. Uh, people had worked with, you know, Jacques Pepin. Um, one of our uh, cooks had lived in Mexico for a long time. Um, one of them, you know, grew up on a farm and hunted and foraged. I mean, we had a... We had a Chinese cook. Um, we had we had real breadth, and mm. on top of that, every one of the cooks got to take a research trip every year, and they got to go to cooking school somewhere in the world. Wow! Just so they would be on top, and they went on eating. On top of that, they went on eating trips as a group. So when we did the Paris issue, we first of all I sent all the editors to go research it. Um, and we slept in every hotel that we wrote about. We, you know, we we would change hotels every night, um, but we and we didn't check in saying, you know, we're from Gourmet. We just checked in. Checked in. 
And the cooks went and rented an apartment and ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner in different restaurants, went to markets, and then cooked, you know, using the inspiration of, you know, what they had learned. So, I mean, those days are gone. (laughs) But, um, you know, Cy really believed that um, he wanted it to be the best Epicurean magazine that we could possibly make. Seventy Six West is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. In 1934, Lewis and Lillian Zabar opened a shop along Broadway at 80th Street on New York's Upper West Side. Lewis was a stickler for quality, roasting his own coffee and personally visiting smokehouses to sample and inspect fish, rejecting far more than he accepted. Today, Lewis's principles and practices continue to guide Zabars. Respect the customer. Never ever stint on quality offer fair value. And last but not least, keep searching for the new and wonderful. Be sure to visit Zabar's store on 80th and Broadway or visit zabars.com for mouthwatering specialties like bagels, babka, rugelach, smoked fish, and of course, world-famous caviar. Zabar's ships to all 48 contiguous United States plus Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico. So there's no reason your friends can't enjoy the fresh, homemade taste of Zabar's any day of the week. Talked about about Twitter, okay? Because that seems to be very much a part of how this all came to be. How did you first of all even get on Twitter, and then how come you have what is it, three hundred thousand? No, I have seven hundred and seven thousand. Oh my god! At the moment. Wow. <laughs> I'm way off. I mean, well, there's a kind of algorithm. You when you get to a certain point, it just keeps doubling. They just start like <laughs> ratcheting up. Um, Twitter. A lot of people do social media because it's good for their brand. That isn't what happened to me. What happened was, I don't know, about eight years ago, I had a dinner party and a bunch of my friends started talking about Twitter. And I said, what are you talking about? And they said, don't you know what Twitter is? And they said, where's your computer? And they signed me up for Twitter. And for the longest time, I just thought, oh, this is really great. I mean, I was at Gourmet. I didn't have time to, I mean, I was really busy. Um, So I didn't have time to email or talk to people, but I thought every day I can just like make a little picture of a moment in my day, a little word picture, and I'll send it to all my friends and they'll know what's going on in my life. And I loved the discipline of 140 characters. And I suddenly found that I had this new voice that I had never known I had. Um, where, you know, how much can you say in that little picture, that little word picture? Um, how, how, how can you put people in that moment? And so I would just craft this little moment every day. Um, and I think I was really unaware of the fact that I, other people were following me until after Gourmet closed. And then suddenly I realized I had all these people who were coming, you know, Michael, my, my husband says, you know, he calls me Pangloss or Pollyanna. Um, but, um, you know, I would try and find one happy moment every day. And I found out that there are people who sort of depend on this little moment from the ether um, that reminds them that they're... Ann Patchett, um, who's a friend, um, says that she believes that every author has one message that goes through all their books, no matter what, whether they're writing cookbooks or memoir or novels. And she asked me what mine was. And I said, um, I think the secret to life is learning to find joy in very simple things. And that's kind of what my Twitter feed is about, is finding one moment that just you go, oh, a red bird just flew across my lawn. Um, And it's kind of what I hope the cookbook is about, too, is just, you know, I mean, there are a million reasons to be miserable every day. 
I mean, I mean, look at what's going on politically, uh, what's going on um, in the Middle East, what's going on in Africa. I mean, you c it is not hard to be in despair. But I think that it's kind of our obligation as human beings to also find reasons to be happy. And they are, they're all around you all the time. You also said it, it felt like you were no longer cooking alone. Well, that's the other thing. I mean, um, not only did I decide to write a novel um, in the months after the closing of Gourmet, but Michael persuaded me that we should move up. We have a house up in the Berkshires, and we had only ever lived there in the summer. And he said, I think we should move to the country. Um, Spencer Town, New York, in January and February, that was a brutal winter. There, we did not, we, we now have a backup generator. We didn't then. There would be, and we were on top of a hill. There would be sometimes five days when we could not get out, where we were just up there, alone, <laughs> weighted in, no electricity, no way to do anything but just watch this white stuff coming down. Um, and the one thing that really helped, and when the electricity went out, um, my phone, I would husband my phone so I could still tweet. And I would, you know, there would be almost nothing left sometimes. You know, four days later, it's like, what's in the refrigerator? And I would tweet to people, what can I cook with a cabbage? You know? <laughs> and people would answer me. And, I, and I, I really started feeling like I had a community of cooks mm. out there who um, would answer questions, who were cooking along with me. Um, this banana bread, I tweeted, you know, I, I have some bananas. I haven't made banana breads, bread in years. What should I do? And I got hundreds of responses, people sending me, you know, literally from all over the world, sending me banana bread recipes. You said you maxed out at a certain point. Like, I did. I mean, there is literally no ingredient that somebody isn't putting into banana bread. <laughs> and I got back to, okay, let's just keep this really simple. Wasn't there also something about the kneading, the kneading bread? Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm a big fan of Jim Leahy's no-knead bread. It, it is a brilliant recipe. Um, and um, I make bread a lot. And I had just mixed up this batch of bread, um, of dough, when the electricity went out and I had no oven. And I tweeted, oh, what am I going to do with this dough? It could be four days till I have an oven. And people tweeted back at me, just keep punching it down. So for four days, I punched the dough down. And what I ended up with when, you know, the minute the electricity came out, I cranked up the stove and I baked this loaf of bread. And it was the best loaf of bread I've ever baked because, of course, what happens when you keep punching it down is you're attracting all the wild yeasts and it's getting more and more complex. And so now I always just let it rise and punch it down and let it rise as many times as I have the patience for <laughs> But when you do have all the electricity on and, and things are sort of humming, the things that you do casually surprise me, like having liver pate in your fridge all the time. Uh, Explain what the staples are not always the obvious staples for you. Um, well, um, yeah, I mean, you know, liver, if, if you're going to make liver pate, um, you end up making more than you're probably going to use right away. It freezes very well. Um, it's fun to make. Um, so, and, you know, I get these wonderful livers that are from, you know, chickens from that my neighbors have raised up there. So, you know, you want to be careful with livers because they do collect all, I mean, their job is to collect all the bad things in one's body. So you want to get them from organic, well-raised chickens. But... Um, so when I get a big batch of them, I make a big batch of liver pate, and um, it's, it defrosts pretty quickly. So if people drop in for dinner, you have it. Um, I would never be without Parmesan cheese. 
Um, and actually one of the things that I usually have in my house too is salmon roe from Zabar's, which is wonderful on all kinds of things. You're also very pro-breakfast, which I liked. Um, and you once had a dinner where it was breakfast. Yes. Um, you know, it was the, the solstice, the summer solstice, and we put tables outside. And, um, you know, I mean, all those breakfast foods, matzo brai, pancakes, uh, waffles, uh, you know, it, uh Peach cobbler. I mean, there's so many wonderful breakfast foods, eggs. I mean, actually, the first recipe in the book is actually one of my favorites. Shirt it's eggs. shirred eggs on on this wonderful potato puree. Um, nobody would would be unhappy to have that for dinner. <laughs> Can we talk about calories for a minute? Because yes. um, it feels like there's a lot of butter. there's there's you're not fretting the way so many people fret about. Whether there's cream, whether whether you're eating bread, all the things that those of us who are neurotic are trying to stay away from, and obviously uh, you look terrific, and it seems like you're enjoying things. Uh, but what what is the what would you say? I'm sure you've been asked. What is the yeah, trick there? It's, it's the, the the first question I'm usually asked is why aren't you fat? I mean, I've I've been a professional eater for my entire adult life. Um, you know, one of the great things about being a restaurant critic is that you learn your own appetites. Um, most of us eat for reasons that have nothing to do with hunger. We eat because we're frustrated, because we don't feel, because we're bored, because we're tired. Um, when you're a restaurant critic and you're constantly faced with giant meals, you learn to know when you've had enough. And... Um, you know, and, and as someone who's a professional food person, I never trust all the stuff that they tell us about, you know, butter's bad. No, it's good. Uh, my poor father ate disgusting Fleischmann's margarine his whole life, even though he loved butter because he was supposedly had a cholesterol problem. I mean, he did himself more harm than good doing that. Um, you know, whole milk is bad. No, whole milk is good. Um, eggs are bad. No, they're, I mean, um, I think you kind of know what your body wants. And part of it is, I mean, I think we all uh, metabolize food in different ways and different people um, do well with different kinds of food. Um, I am a carbohydrate person. I love them um, and couldn't live without them. But I think it's mostly about um, forgetting all the rules, knowing what your body wants, paying attention to it, what makes you feel good, um, and eating what you like, but not to excess. Um, and I think well, one of the problems with America is that we have been given so much processed food, which is designed to make us not understand when, when, we're, we're, full. when we're full, that is so easy to swallow, that you eat too fast, that is soft and over-salted and over-sugared, um, and it's not satisfying. So you, you keep eating because you're not getting satisfaction where, um, you know, when you are lucky enough to find a perfect peach, when you're done with that, you really don't want anything else in your mouth for a while. You want to, you want the echo of that flavor to just linger for a while. And um, I feel like so much of this is just about eating good foods, eating simple foods, um, and learning to be satisfied with fewer bites of really delicious food instead of a mountain of junk. <laughs> but I also love that you actually made in the middle of the night and finished a hot fudge sundae. Um, and that's, Let's talk about that. Well, that's the other thing. I mean, you know, some days you just have hungry days and you have to give in to it. And you have to know that it doesn't mean that you're going to eat a hot fudge sundae every night for the rest of your life, but that if... You know, you have a horrible nightmare and you wake up and you think the only thing that's going to make me feel good is a hot fudge sundae. Have it. It seems like you got up and cooked a bunch during this book. 
Is that true um, that you cook at night um, regularly or? Not all that often. I mean, this was this was a time of um, turbulence. Turbulence. Um, I mean, I do like to cook late at night, but getting up and getting up at when I'm asleep no. is not. You weren't on Ambien in some I, trance. I, no, I, I, it's not my favorite thing to do. <laughs> I love the Peter, peanut butter and jellies in the book. Uh, Tell us why. I think peanut butter and jelly is is one of the truly unsung great American foods. Um, it's jam, though, right? Not jelly. It's jam, and to me, it has to be red jam, and it should be strawberry. Um, but also. Um, you know, for me, it is the taste of freedom. I mean, when I was in second grade, my mother let me make whatever I wanted for myself for lunch every day. And I made myself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Oh, and it also has to have butter on it. Peanut butter and butter is such a great combination. <laughs> um, and then if you zap it in the microwave for eight seconds, it's really good. <laughs> Thanksgiving. Before we go to questions, I want to uh, talk a little bit about Thanksgiving because okay. it's quite an undertaking in your life. Yes, it is. So explain. Um, it's like a week long. It is. Um, Thanksgiving, for whatever reason, is Michael's religion. Um, I am not a big turkey fan. Michael loves turkey, and um, he wants this major Thanksgiving. And for many years, we had a lot of friends, you know, we lived in California for a long time. So we had a lot of friends from California whose kids were in college on the East Coast. So they would come and, you know, the parents would come and stay with us. And Nick would bring his friends and the college kids would bring their friends. And so we tend to have, you know, between 20 and 35 people for Thanksgiving, and they tend to start coming on Monday. And um, many of them don't leave till the following Sunday. And it's, so it's not just cooking the turkey. It's cooking three meals a day for all of these uh, people. And I love it. And I love getting up in the morning and there are people sleeping all over the floor and um, sort of stepping over them and making coffee. And people sort of get up, and as they get up, I say, what do you want for breakfast? And make whatever they want for breakfast. And the cooking kind of goes on all day, and people help. And, um, you know, my we built our house in the country. I mean, our, my apartment here in New York has one of those horrible kitchens that's closed off, and I hate it when people come for dinner. I'm in the kitchen and they're all in the living room. My kitchen is my living room and is basically my whole house upstate. And so we're all there together cooking. And um, when it's over, I'm very depressed. I really hate it when the last person leaves. And how are you really, if you're honest about it, with people chipping in and cooking with you? Are you are you possessive oh. and territorial and no like no you, I'm, you don't I'm, know what you're doing no no I'm 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 really happy and you know Even look if you see them doing it wrong I mean I learned when Nick was little when I didn't know what to do with him I we would go into the kitchen and the first time I gave him a pie to roll out and he started banging on the pie crust it was like all I could do to go no 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 and I got over it you know. Um, you know, let them do what they want. It doesn't matter if the onions aren't chopped correctly. And actually, when Nick briefly worked in a kitchen, a professional kitchen, one summer he worked in a restaurant, and um, he, he worked at Barbudo, and Jonathan Waxman looked at him and said, didn't your mother teach you better than that? <laughs> but he's in the book as cooking for you sometimes when you were laid up. Um, with a broken foot, is it? Yes. So, is this something that also he that comes naturally to him? I mean, is he relaxed? And he 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 loves to cook, um, and really does, and and really does cook, and cooks very differently than I do. But um, what I love about Nick and his generation is that cooking is not women's work for them. Mm. I mean, um, 
you know, last year he, he's a Colombian graduate school and um, there are all these foreign kids in his class and none of them had, knew, had ever heard of Seder, you know, these Brazilian, Italian kids. So he bravely just created a Seder all by himself um, for all these people because he thought they should know what it was. Michael, though, is pretty spoiled by you. I mean, yeah. it sounds like when you weren't really busy, you were cooking him three meals a day. And that would be pretty, not, I don't mean that in a sexist way. I just think all of us would love to have you doing that for us. <laughs> um, is it just kind of the dynamic of your marriage that he knows he's getting some incredible lunch when you're in the country? Because you're going to figure out what you want to make and go to markets and... Um, yeah, I mean, most of the time he's, he, he eats... He doesn't eat a big lunch usually. I mean, he eats a big breakfast. So I make him cakes and, you know, I mean, I, I really make him breakfast. And then lunch, I'll, I'll sort of wander. I have a little writing studio and I'll wander in and say, what do you want for lunch? And often he'll, you know, say a tuna sandwich. Um, lunch isn't a big deal usually, but then I'll say, what do you want for dinner? And I'll happily make him anything he wants for dinner. That's so nice. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even imagine. Um, the Asian flavor comes in a lot through this book. Is that something that you were exploring or you had done a lot while you were at Gourmet? Um, no, I mean, I love Asian food. Yeah, I, I mean, um, I, you know, look, I'm a New York Jew. I, you know, grew up not that far from Chinatown. Um, um, I really do love those flavors and um, traveled a lot in Asia. Um, you know, the first time I... Uh, tasted Thai food in Los Angeles. I, I it literally was. It took the top of my head off, and it was like, "Where has this food been all my life? I want more of it." And then I thought, "I wonder if this is authentic. I want to go to. I want to go to Thailand." And so I. I mean, this was like 1980, 1980, I think. And I went to every food magazine and said, I want to do a piece on, I want to go to Thailand. I want to do a piece on Thai food. And nobody was interested in Thai food. So I got eight assignments to do something on Japanese food. And I went to Japan for a month. And then I went from Japan to Thailand just to, you know, explore that food. I've, I've always loved it. And when I'm up in the country, there isn't, if I'm going to eat Asian food up there, I've got to make it myself. So, you know, I when I'm here, I go to Chinatown and, you know, I always have lots of Chinese ingredients. Um, I don't know if you remember when I worked for a magazine called Brill's Content. I don't know if any of you remember. We reported on the media. I, I did a piece with you that was called Ruth Reichel's Last Supper. And we went to a Japanese place on, I think, 55th, and I watched you basically report the meal without taking a note. And even though I know you don't want to go all the way back to those times days, but when you were reporting on food, when you were the critic, I mean, have you retained that specificity of experience where I, I watched you tasting and somehow having to retain enough to write about it, but not writing anything down? Um, yeah, I, it's, it's a discipline. Um, I, you know, what, the secret to that was to go home and immediately write everything down. Um, the next day it's gone. Hmm. You know, I mean, it's, it's really, I mean, when I was a restaurant critic, I would go to lunch, I would go back and sit at my computer and spit out everything about them. I mean, sit there for an hour writing notes with even, you know, what people said, what people at the next table were saying, anything that would bring the meal back for me. And, you know, at night, you know, could be three in the morning by the time you get done with a meal at Danielle. Um, and I would sit at my computer um, and write it all down because I knew that if I got up in the morning, it would be gone. Wow. Again, since we're at the JCC, I want to just talk about your uh, trip to Israel, which you write about in the book. Mm -hmm. That was a post-college gift? Um, no, I was still in college. You're still in college. And um, it started as a disaster. It did start as a disaster. Um, my brother and his wife had moved to Israel and my parents gave me a trip to go visit them, but they bought me a, um, a 
uh, what do you call it? Uh, a tour. A tour. And the, it came with um, this trip up to the Golan Heights. And um, it, so I, I go, and it's this big bus, and it's a bunch of old ladies, basically, <laughs> and me and one other young person. And um, they instantly put us together, and it was very reassuring. She had frizzy hair just like me. And, um, you know, they put us in a room together. And we did that thing you do when, you know, you're with a stranger who you're probably never going to see again. You know, we stayed up all night talking, telling each other, you know, all our secrets. And I was very shocked to learn. I mean, she was a couple years older than I was, but she had two children, which just, I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't wrap my arms around the idea. Um, you know, I was like 19, I think. And the idea that she had two children just... It completely blew me away. And it was like, um, and of course, you know, at the end of it, we said, you know, we'll stay in touch. Um, and of course we didn't. And a couple of years later, somebody gave me tapestry and I looked down and there she was. Incredible story. I will just say, even though she's not gonna come over and cook in your kitchen, this is the next best thing, this book. So thank you. That was Ruth Reichel talking to Abby Pogerbin. Our podcasts are produced by Megan Whitman and me, Eric Winnick. Our editor is Matt Temkin. Music, as always, is by Peril Wolf. The voice of Zabars is Leah Rosensweet. Please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And if you can, share this episode with your friends. If you're just joining us, welcome. And be sure to subscribe for future episodes.